0: welcome to this episode of the sun the moon and the truth my name is karina guthrie my co-host is natalie Bachman, and we are very excited to welcome you here today for a conversation with sally kempton um, you know natalie and i we we did and we still do uh jump on a call once a week and the call is something of a hybrid of work meeting and just general life catch-up and this collaborative sort of questioning of the world and our place in it and where we are on our own journeys of practice and studentship and at some point last year we thought Surely we're not the only ones who are asking these questions and maybe we could invite other people into this space with us and also invite on guests who would really like to learn from and just have these conversations together. So that's what we did and that's how this podcast was born. Uh, And we met Sally uh, last year on a a panel that we hosted, which she so very kindly agreed to participate in. We were stoked when she did. Um, And so I'll hand over to Nat now so she can introduce uh, Sally and begin.
1: Beautiful. Thank you, Karina. So Sally Kempton, for those of you who might not know yet, is a legend. (laughs) She is to us very much so. Um, She is a former Swami of the Vedic tradition and has been practicing and sharing what she has been learning for over four decades now. Um, And she's the author of both Awakening Shakti and Meditation for the Love of It, both of which have been really transformative for myself, as well as I would say an entire generation of practitioners of Tantra and Yoga. We are beyond honored to be sharing this time and space with Sally. And if you have not had a chance to meet Sally, to learn with Sally, then welcome. (laughs) Welcome to Sally Kempton. And I hope that you take some nuggets away today and will pursue any further opportunities to be able to learn and grow with her. So thank you
2: thank you it's so lovely to be with you
1: likewise
2: and this conversation is of course the best yeah.
1: yes yes it is and we'll we'll just dive right in um, totally. we'd love to to maybe start with sort of an introduction to what brought you to the tantric yogic path um, what was your sort of introduction um, and maybe that that moment where you went "Ooh, wow there's something here that I really want to pursue.
2: Um, yes. So my introduction, Tantra came into my practice as in a specific way. I mean, I, fairly, a fairly long time after I had been doing what could be called a traditional yoga practice, although one of the things I've come to realize is how much of what we call yoga and meditation practice is actually Tantric. Um, so I it, it's a long story, but I got uh, I I took a psychedelic journey in the early '70s, which just opened the space of love for me, and was such a profound experience that it kind of instantly shifted my priorities. So I spent about a year studying with a Western group, and then I. Uh, then I came in contact with my teacher, Swami Muktananda, who was a traditional and yet very revolutionary uh, teacher who was extremely famous in that, in the early days, you know, when the Indian teachers were first starting to come to the West, he was particularly dramatic because he, he would awaken your Kundalini through a process which really the tantras. Teach about more than any other tradition in yoga, which which in tantra is called Shaktipat, which literally means the descent of cosmic power, which awakens the germ of cosmic power in you, and and then literally propels you onto the path or propels your journey in a fairly dramatic fashion. And in my case, uh, the the um the, the heart of it, the you know, the actual essence of it was. A very radical opening of the heart which sort of opened me up to guru bhakti and subsequently uh, you know different forms of bhakti uh, and just to describe why this particular path was tantric uh, and this is you know i would just say this is the kind of tantrika i am that his teaching and also his transmission was the recognition that Everything in the universe is made of shakti is made of sacred energy, and that this can be experienced not only in meditation, not only you know in in activities, spiritual activities, but actually while you're walking down the street while you're eating, this is of course, as you know, the heart of Tantra is that because the universe is made of of Shakti is made of love, that its essence can be experienced in everything you do so so though I was never. I, I I would never not have called myself a tantric practitioner because, to be honest, my guru kind of he just didn't. Even though he was very much a tantrika, he was a tantric, He was an internal tantrika, and because in those days tantra was completely um, associated with what Rod Stryker calls California tantra, which is sex, you know, like like um, better sex essentially, and and mystical sex which uh, he was always as most of the, most traditional indian teachers were he you know, he wanted to separate this extraordinary tradition from the way it was understood in in the 70s and early 80s and in the us so he never really talked about tantra uh, but you know as i as i later studied it i realized that everything we were doing was tantric specifically the specifically the worship of the internal Shakti, uh, Guru Bhakti, which is a big deal in Tantra, and a lot of mantra. So you know that these these um, these energy practices that I consider to be the heart of Tantra were kind of a part of my path without my ever using the word. And uh, so let me just stop for a minute. I, as as I say, we're talking about a long journey, so I could go on and on. But is there anything that you'd like to know more about here, or that, uh, or that, or ask me about before I get into, you know, a later iteration of it?
1: Did you meet your guru, your teacher, in the U.S. or in India?
2: I met him here, uh, and then I traveled with him for an between uh, until he died, which was in 1982, and so we spent couple of years several years in India um so we traveled around it was a it was he had a pretty public scene and he also had a ashram which was uh really a kind of a cauldron of spiritual transformation so so I spent basically eight years doing very hardcore intense transformative classical ashram yogic sadhana uh and um he left his body in, 19, in, 20, in 1982 and he and I stayed on he'd given me initiation to sannyas which is the Indian monk vow and uh and it's some couple of years after that the his successor was a goddess worshiper she her family uh were devotees of goddess Durga she was from south India she had actually been born as a result of her mother's prayers in the Durga temple in her hometown. She's very goddess centered. And a, a huge statue of goddess Durga had been built in the back garden of the ashram, where once she became the guru, she began to hold Navaratri celebrations there every year. So, and, we were, and they were quite elaborate. So there would be, you know, girls in Gujarati saris doing stick dances and we would tell stories, and there would be a lot of chanting. It was quite a great celebratory event. So I was um, teaching in one of those uh, one of those events. I was telling a story, and as I was telling the story, it, it literally felt as though I was as though some force had come into my body. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to call it goddess possession, but it definitely just sort of threw out my my normal Uh, my normal self, my normal sense of self, and sort of replaced it with this ecstatic, you know, absolutely, um, it's hard to find, it's like the mind was quiet, but, but speaking was going on. I mean, it was very, very much an experience of being guided by Shakti in a very immediate way, and that just started a whole process of of my, a deepening relationship with the goddess, with the Shakti. Um, my guru's tradition, his teaching, or he was a Vedanta, he was a classical Indian sannyasin. He had, uh, he received shaktipada initiation from his guru, and his enlightenment came as a result of the sadhana that he did post kundalini awakening, and he truly, that was the sadhana that he offered. So, and that the philosophy that that explained the process that had really transformed him from a seeker into a finder was Kashmir Shaivism, Trika. So, and at a certain point after his enlightenment, he came across texts of Trika and saw that they, you know, what he had come to understand about Shakti, about Kundalini, about the Guru, you know, what which is which is really the, I would say, the more radical, the more radical positions of Tantra. Um, and also, of course, the understanding that the world, the physical world is sacred, which of course in Vedanta is it's not, it's not an unheard of idea in Vedanta, but it's not, it's not what they front load. So so he taught Kashmir Shaivism. And for me, what was radical about di- starting to directly connect to feminine deities was, uh, it, you know, first of all, when you start when you start contemplating female divinity, you realize you have all these ideas, one of which, of course, is that God is male. So to trans tra- sort of transfer my focus from Shiva to Shakti, because you know, Muktananda was a Shiva lover of Shiva. Um, his mantra was a Shiva mantra. His whole bhav, was a shivabhav, it just, it was so radical to, you know, to realize that, you know, that adornment, that food, that, you know, that enjoyment, that all of these things, um, which were, which were a part of the tradition, it was not a particularly austere tradition, but to realize that these things could actually be practiced as worship, as a form of meditation was, and, and that, and this is the other piece which is hard to explain to someone who doesn't have a deity practice because it's so counterintuitive to the way we think in the West, but but learning to actually focus my attention on a divine form, um, I, I you know, to chant mantras with a specific intention of connecting to a subtle deity form is just proved to be one of the most efficient and effective practices that I had ever found for you know deepening and broadening my meditation and also my view of life. So that's pretty much that's pretty much my story. I hope that's not too abstract. Um, but yes, I uh, I'm you know I I I went from being a sort of classical direct path meditation and awareness to being a um, goddess worshiping, you know, (laughs) practitioner of, I I I was always doing mantra, but of, you know, of a very focused practice of internalizing divine forms.
1: That's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) I just... That's such an understatement, really, of, of what I would like to be able to convey. But that's like the little kid in me that's just, you're saying so many things that are just lighting me up inside. Um, sort of affirmations of, of some little glimmers of experience that I think Karina and I are both having. And to, to hear your experience um, so eloquently and, and so uh, genuinely expressed is just really exciting. Oh. Oh, thank
2: you and you know I think there's a big group of us these days who are really turning to this form of practice yeah 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 it's interesting that deity practice you know for for contemporary Gen X and Gen Z people is so much more radical and esoteric uh, than what has always been the most radical and esoteric that is to say the direct path Meditation on awareness, who am I? Practices, um, which have found so much acceptance in the West and in the mainstream, um, and which I think are is fundamentally a masculine practice, though, though it is direct, it totally works, it's true, you know, all of that. Um, and I, I bow endlessly to Ramana and other great beings of that tradition, Shankaracharya, and others, but. Really, I have come to believe that Shakti is the secret, and that, and that even those masters—you know, the Indian masters—I um, don't know so much about the Westerners, but the Indian masters—they were all goddess worshippers, you know—and they, and they kept it secret, <laughs> you know. They, they had the—they had their Sri Yantra um, in a hidden place.
1: <laughs>
2: they did their chants, their goddess chants. But everybody seems to have understood, you know, the fundamental teaching of Shakta tantric systems, which is that there is no liberation without Shakti. You know, Shakti has gotten us into this pickle and <laughs> we're not gonna get out of it unless she gives us permission. So so that's uh, that's why I think Shakta practice is so important right now. You know, I mean, with everything we know about climate change and et cetera, et cetera, you know, it's it's it is the practice that I think can allow us to understand the divinity in the earth, the divinity in each other, you know, that there's just so much that it it opens up for us. It's so needed now.
0: I have about a thousand questions and I'm gonna try and I'm just gonna pick one. Um, One is, you know, you you talked about this idea of, you know, shakta worship as feeling kind of revolutionary and uh, different when you encountered it. And it made me think about today when a lot of, you know, people are encountering it for the first time and a lot of women are encountering this idea of the divine feminine also for the first time. And I feel like it's, it, it feels no less revolutionary now than it it did for you then. But I also, you know, there's this conflation of the divine feminine with woman. And I feel like there are so many um, sort of tricky or convoluted conversations that are are, are had with the conflation of the two. And I wonder if you could speak to that in some way. I don't know how to ask a question that's more pointed or specific than that because it feels like a big ball of tangled yarn
2: i completely agree and and to be honest it's one of the things that kept me from teaching goddess practice for a long time because and and i'm all for women's spirituality but uh but goddess practice is not the same thing as women's spirituality first of all it's because there's not there's nothing on this planet that is not filled with shakti and you know obviously people in masculine bodies or in non-female bodies let's just say uh you know have the same they're made of the same shakti they have they they can have you know the same relationship with shakti most tantric practitioners or many tantric practitioners traditionally were men you know so the shakta tradition you know i mean let's get real uh, may i may i say this um, you know, India is no more, is no less a male chauvinist culture than any place in the West. You know, it's it's not that loving goddesses has made them treat women differently than than we do. Um, and of course, one result of that is that in the great Shakta temples, men, most of the priests, I mean most of the officiants are men, because you know, men. That's what men do it, women don't do it. So, and I think there's, I don't really know what's going on in India in temples these days because I haven't been there since, um, since the early aughts and a lot has changed there, you know, including the yoga world has just, just boomed and blossomed in India. Uh, so I'm, I can't, I can't really speak to, to how that is held, but, um, I, I do think Shakta practice is, it's a universal practice and I just believe it should be discussed and described as a universal practice. That said, um, given the fact that, that our spirituality, certainly in my generation and not so much in yours, but to a large extent in yours, our teachers were men, you know, that what they taught was, let's call it in some sense, male oriented, which by which I mean um oriented towards uh abstract abstraction non-duality awareness um you know renunciation transcendence uh you know a, a kind of i wouldn't say demonization of the body because it you know that's not true but but a a certain feeling the body's not real the world isn't real Therefore, we don't have to take it as seriously as we now know we do if we're going to have a a planet. And I do think that shakta practice, shakta connections, you know, earth spirituality, et cetera, which have always been or somehow been conflated with women's spirituality, I would say they're becoming more and more um, more and more mainstream now. But yeah, uh, it's an interesting question. I mean it's like I love the idea of women having their own world of practice where they get to be the experts. We get to be the experts. You know, there's there's certain conversations that men can only have with other men that women can only have with other women. I think those conversations are really important. So I and I do agree that the banner of women's spirituality has been unbelievably powerful and important for many women and at the same time it limits the way we can understand Shakti if we imagine it's just associated with women especially as I've noticed it was for a while especially associated with women's sexuality so somehow a lot of people on, and I've been on a few podcasts in which this was this was the the primary idea a lot of people think that If you're going to talk about shakti what you're actually talking about is you know is feminine sexuality as opposed to masculine sexuality um and yeah and that that the gifts of shakti are only available to women and that's clearly untrue (laughs) not only untrue it's rather pernicious i think
1: yeah But,
2: but did you read that book the power no. Oh, I recommend it. It's I'm not going to go on about it. It's a book came out in 2017. It's about uh, it's about a world in which women are given are given a power, <clears throat> which is they can kind of it's kind of an electrical energy. It's it's obviously written by somebody who knows about Kundalini, but only women have it, and because women become therefore able to defeat men in you know there's they can overcome male physical strength. They start to realize they can take over the world. They do take over the world. And it turns out they're just as screwed up as men are. (laughs) So, but it's,
0: I think that's the thing, you know, we all have to do this together. Do you think there is, I just have one follow-up question. Uh, Do you think that there is a difference in the way that energy moves in a female body as opposed to a, a male one? Or do you think energy moves in the same way irrespective?
2: Well, I can't really speak to that as an expert. Hmm. Um my understanding is that energy is essentially moving in the subtle body. And as far as I understand, the subtle body is the same. I mean it's not I'm sure it's individual like everything else and in, in a human being but it's not that it's one that is not that the women have one subtle body and men have another now what how the shakti moves you know relating to menstruation and uh and childbearing um to be honest i've never had a child i've i have not had that experience which i know many women have described of you know this very extraordinary thing that happens when you're when you're pregnant and giving birth uh which i th- i guess is unique to women <laughs> you know it's not but in terms of practice uh i don't i don't th- i don't think it moves differently you know though i will say this and you guys may have had that experience you know there are, there are there are techniques that uh, there's actually there's a couple of them in my goddess book you know, for activating the womb, for activating the, you know, the, the, the feminine organs, such as to make them conduits for shakti and, uh, but, but there are also practices for men, you know, that the practices for bringing shakti up from the sexual center and using it to activate different centers, um, you know, it's, everyone does it, everyone can, anyone can do it, yeah.
1: So along a somewhat similar line, um, I'm just so fascinated. In the little note that I sent to you via email, um, I was talking about these these experiences that we've had of being at trainings that are maybe predominantly led by male teachers and this feeling of like these little pockets of women that are coming together and starting to sort of, you know, in hushed tones talk about your work. and say, yep. well, have you ever read Sally Kempton? Have you ever studied with Sally? And, and introducing one another in that way to all that you have provided for us. And it makes me wonder if there was anyone like that for you that you could look to? No. <laughs> I mean, except, um, let,
2: let me really think about that. Um, well, I would say in my relationship with Somi Muktananda's successor, who, whose approach is, was to life itself, has certain feminine qualities like, you know, the importance of kindness and actually taking care of the physical world. And so she's, she is kind of a role model for, you know, for, of someone who is kind of embodying Shakti. So in that sense, yes, I, I, and she was, of course, very influential for me because I was with her for quite a while. Um, so, yeah, I would say that if, if I had a mentor, it would, it would be her. Um, I now meet women. Um, my, I mean, there are some women whom I've come to know, many of them in the yoga world, who I do think are very seriously incarnating you know, feminine, feminine spirituality in their bodies. Uh, and they've been quite influential for me, you know, just as friends and peers and people to talk to. But I'm—I have to say, I'm mostly interested in the mystical aspects of it, not so much in the, you know, in the physical, yog- physically yogic aspects of Shakti. Um, and I don't consider myself an expert, possibly because I'm physically lazy, <laughs> so I've never done a rigorous. I do do a physical yoga, you know, Hatha yoga practice and Tai Chi practice, but it's never been my main practice. And, you know, people who really go into it and really, you know, find the micro movements and the, you know, feel into the energy flows and the Prana flow in the physical body have a level of expertise at that, that I'm in awe of.
1: So another question that we were curious about was For those of us that do look to you as a role model, someone that's further along on the path than we are, if you were to look back at any of those moments that seemed monumental at the time, major obstacles, um, huge hurdles or trials that you had to work through that maybe in retrospect, you might have some advice about to those of us who are coming up to them perhaps do you have any any words of wisdom to share with us?
2: Um, what I'm going to say is, uh, yeah, I do. Um, so there's a couple of things, and especially if you're if you're practicing within awake kundalini, you're going to experience turmoil. You know, it's we call it the kundalini roller coaster, where at one moment you're ecstatic, you're you know, you surrendered to God, all of your relationships are going great, everything you ever wanted is happening, because that is one of the things that kundalini, awakened kundalini, will in many ways smooth out aspects of your worldly life, but, you know, the the whole principle behind, and as you know this, because it's true in all sadhanas, that, you know, there's kind of two simultaneous things that are always going on. One, you're meeting your your divine self. You're, you know, you're finding the the clarity at the root of the mind, or the love in the heart, which is, you know, ecstatic is my favorite word for it. But and then on the other hand, you're seeing all of your dreck, all your schmutz, all the, you know, all of the, you know, the anger, the grief, the confusion, all this stuff that we all have buried in our subtle system. You know that are that form the blueprint for our destiny in this lifetime. And part of the job of Kundalini, as I know you know, is to clear it out. So, and this is something that if you don't have guidance, if you don't have a peer community, if you haven't, you know, if you don't have, thank God now there are books that you can read that help, but and not a lot of the, the calls and, and emails that I get from people who I don't know are people who've had a Kundalini awakening and Think they're going crazy or you know don't understand what's happening and and I'm one of the people that you know that it suggested that you talk to about it so that's the you know the main thing is that when your spiritual power begins to be awakened which it inevitably will if you keep practicing just understand that uh first of all it's going to bring up a lot of things that you may not want to look at two that that there is a tendency to get inflated by, you know, by the the awakening of capacities that you may not have had access to, um, generally known as the yogic Siddhis, and a lot of people get into trouble with that one because they haven't fully, they haven't they haven't been fully cooked, you know. And in, in Sanskrit, there's this wonderful uh, slang phrase. It's in Hindi actually. Um, they say that you're you're raw. The word is kacha. So you're, you're like a, you know, you've started the path, you're practicing, but you're still raw, you haven't been, you know, you haven't been seasoned, you haven't been cooked. And, you know, one of the big mistakes that, that we make on the path is imagining that we're enlightened or that we're done or that we're finished way earlier. And, you know, and then another layer of the samskatas comes up and, you know, you have a humbling realization that, oh, you're not a perfect person. Um, and it's very good to know that because for instance, a lot, what a lot of people do is start teaching prematurely or start, you know, thinking of themselves as experts when they really aren't. And so continuing to learn, you know, continuing to kind of humbly seek out knowledge is really important. Um, and to somehow find a way to split the difference between actually searching for the answers that you need at a particular time in your life and what the tradition calls spiritual promiscuity where you just keep going from teacher to teacher to teacher you know and never stay long enough to fully imbibe what the teacher has to give you so uh, and the other thing I would say and this is the good news is if you hang in there transformation happens and you you know you you wake up Ten years from when you started, and that probably seems like a really long time. (laughs) It certainly did to me when I was starting. You wake up, you know, and you suddenly realize that how many things have changed in your life, you know, how much more equanimity you have, how much more love you have, how much more sort of understanding about the nature of things you have, and how calmer your mind is, and you know, and you're starting to have really interesting experiences and spiritual breakthroughs, but it takes for most people, certainly for me, it took a while. Um, I had some very dramatic, fabulous experiences when I first started on this journey. I, you know, I mean, experiences of my heart exploding and all differences disappearing. So everything was inside me you know, and profound devotion, all these, all these things came up. Um, but it took me almost 10 years to be a good meditator, which is one of the reasons, or let's say a, uh, a, to actually go deep in meditation. And one of the reasons I wrote that book, The Heart of Meditation, I mean, um, Meditation for the Love of It, uh, is because I, in the process of trying to, trying to, you know, my, one of the things that tradition says is that meditation teaches you meditation. In other words, your teacher will say, do this, do this, do this, and that's, and, you know, and often, that's pretty much all they'll tell you. So it be, as it begins to unfold from within, uh, if you approach it in a spirit of experimentation, of playfulness, that you're not necessarily trying to achieve anything, but you're trying to explore the territory within, uh, that is the most powerful and effective way to meditate. And that's, that's why I wrote the book, is to just encourage people to be really playful and experimental and to realize that once you're on the journey, once you're on the path, uh, you know if you're keeping your integrity and you're really looking at your motivation, and you're doing your practice for as long as you reasonably can every day and doing it regularly, that you're going to be guided, and that it's safe to experiment and it's you know it's safe to try something that you learned in a class one weekend, play with it for three or four weeks, realize it's oh this is great I'll continue this is not for me. I won't, but that, having that attitude, that meditation practice is something that we really engage in and if we're not interested in it primarily, you know, if we're not interested in it at the beginning, to realize that we will become interested in it if we, if we you know, spend some time really mining our own meditative skills. My guru used to say something, he would say, nobody knows how the enlightened beings attain their state. They just follow this path, and enlightenment, like like the sun rising from behind the clouds, enlightenment manifests on its own. And I have found that to be pretty much true. You know, it's it's frustrating, you know, when when someone tells you this and you're like not seeing any any progress, but it's in time, you realize it's true. So, Karina, go on.
0: (laughs) I was just. Uh, thinking, you know, you've talked about, um, you know, sometimes transformation can strike like lightning and it's, you know, like Shaktipat or, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, some psychedelic experiences or something like that. And then sometimes you have that transformation that just quietly creeps up on you and you don't even realize that it's happening until you look over your shoulder and realize that that thing that was underway that you weren't even aware of actually was really important. And I wonder what some of those transformations were for you that kind of happened quietly, but were significant for you along the way. Well, I would say,
2: I mean, other than your skills, increasing, which, you know, there's skills to meditation, there's skills to mantra practice, as there are skills, of course, to asana practice. So obviously, you know, you start out being not so good at it. And this is especially true of the inner practices. It's somehow, you know, if you have the right body, you can get pretty good at hatha yoga relatively quickly. But Uh, If you have a normal, outgoing, driven, contemporary mind, it's not so easy to get it to turn inside. So one of the transformations that is really significant is when you find that you actually can sit for meditation and enjoy it for a period of time. Uh, And so there's a few of them, and some of them are kind of classic signposts on the journey. One is that your concentration increases. So You know, you might start out, and anyone who's done mindfulness knows this, you might start out, you know, if you're counting breaths, you get to five and then you're thinking about something. And at a certain point you realize, oh, I'm, my mind is quiet. I, you know, I'm, I'm able to be fully mindful of the breath of the body of, you know, my thoughts coming and going, and I'm sinking deeper and deeper. And this field ground reversal is happening where it's like the thoughts, the the um, the frou frou active part of your mind begins to get quiet, and this this clarity, this uh, this sort of open spaciousness arises. And at a certain point, you realize that that open spaciousness is you. In other words, it's not an altered state. It's not it's not a it's not a meditative experience. It is actually a glimpse and you know and as you go on a deeper and deeper immersion in that in you which is unchanging which is unbothered which is you know truly real uh and the more that the more that part of you um comes forward as it were and the easy it becomes easier and easier to identify with that so then at a certain point you're walking around you're you know, you're having a tough day, you know, you're in the middle of a fight with your teenager and, and then, and you can, you can turn your mind inward and meet that aspect of you and act from there. And I would say in terms of what really changes your life, that is probably the most powerful transformation that I know is that once you start to identify with that, that spaciousness, Whose, whose nature is love, uh, which is aware and loving, then then your you know then your life is good life no matter what's going on. Yeah. So that's one of them. Another uh, another that I have found very important is. Let's see how to put. I mean the word I'm going to use is devotion, but that's such a hard word to understand, but you know to kind of be able to look around you i was just a friend of mine is here we were just taking a walk in you know in a wilderness park near where i live and you know it's perfect summer day in carmel valley california and and the the feeling of you know the wind meeting the grass meeting the trees meeting the our skin it's it's like you're just going oh my god this this is like love flowing you know so and that's that's the result of practice uh and and that's not and it becomes normal you know it's not it becomes not a good day but your normal day and then maybe there's a bad day when you're not feeling it but your normal state is is that affectionate sense of awareness and and i would say okay another thing you start to be able to to realize that the way you see the world is dependent on your mind, is dependent on your inner state. So, you know, that teaching that's become a new age cliche actually comes from the Vedanta tradition, that the world is as you see it, you know, we create the world by, you know, through our neural pathways, but also through our attitudes. So as, again, as this, as this kind of transformation happens, then, then you're suddenly able to see, okay, this looks like a really Bad situation, but maybe it's the way I'm seeing it, you know. And that's also very helpful. So those are, you know, understanding what the mind is, experiencing what the mind is, the state beyond the mind, and being able to experience the world from a state of, you know, kind of devotional love for, for it, for everything.
1: Yeah. And then what is enlightenment beyond that?
2: <laughs> I would say, that's a very good question. Cause I think, I mean, there are obviously layers and layers and layers of enlightenment. Um, well, there, there's some different stages, state, stages, state stations of it. And some of the traditions actually give very useful lists of the different stages, but I would say one of the main stages is when you, when you're able to, uh, to both completely lose the world. In other words, to become completely internalized in the state that's called nirvikalpa samadhi, where there's you know there's actually no no inside, no outside. Um, that, and then to come out of that state, to awaken from that state. And bring into the waking world the experience of oneness that is pretty much unbroken, you know, so that so that you're able to look around and 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 really see the light that is what we're made of, which is the way my Guru used to describe the world. You know, that's it's a particular kind of enlightenment where it's literally a state of enlightenment where you look at the trees and you see the trees as God, and you look at another person, and you see the other person as God. I've had a couple of moments of that, but I would say that's an ambition that I'm, I'm holding on to. (laughs) You know, for that to be one's only reality just seems like that's worth all this work.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's so nice to know that all of the steps along the way are beautiful as well. That it's not just we want to go from zero to 60. It's enjoying this whole process and all of the layers that are revealed along the way.
2: Yeah, that is so well said. And, and I think that that's one of the things about Tantra that I, that I most love is that it really is about really seeing the beauty in every moment. And, and we can do that in a, I don't know, what would you would say, a sort of a new age wellness way, which is great. I mean, I'm not knocking it, it's wonderful. And we can do it from a state of utter awe and wonder that's, you know, that, that having a, a core internal practice is what lets that happen. But even having, you know, a not very serious practice or, a, you know, a practice that you do, uh, you know, three or four times a week is gonna change your perspective, is gonna give you a lot of gifts. Yeah. yeah. As Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, even a little of this practice saves you from great harm.
1: Absolutely. I, I think there is a tendency for a lot of folks to say, well, I can't do all of it. Right. So I'm not going to do any at all. Right. And, yeah, it's beautiful to be able to give that reassurance that the little bit that you can do, whatever you can do, is going to make a difference.
2: Yeah, and I, I think this is the genius of TM, you know, that you, you meditate 20 minutes twice a day. You'll see these transformations, and it's it's true. And you don't uh, secret. You don't even have to meditate twice to do it once. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, I always say to people, pick pick a a meditation focal point that you enjoy, and and pick a mantra or a an awareness practice that you can do, and be prepared to you know, and I know you guys, I'm sure you guys do this, be prepared to to work with ideas that you can carry around in your mind all day and that will tend to change your perspective and that that is actually enough. You, know, you can do that for years while you go around, you know, while you go about your life and you'll see transformation.
0: Sally, what would you um, say about this, dance I think that lots of practitioners have, have which is you know the 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 getting of something that's sort of esoteric wisdom and then the experience of something as you know lived w- wisdom or lived experience and you know this dance between the two where sometimes you feel like you are connected to, to something that feels like it's living and other, other times you lose that connection Connection and you're leaning into the 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 knowledge of a, a tradition. Like, what would you say about that dance in your own experience? And you know, whatever you would give to to people who are who are in that.
2: Okay, now, that's an interesting question. Do you mean is it the dance <laughs> between depending on your own intuitive experience, the things that come up for you, following inner guidance, or following what the traditional texts okay. say? What do you yeah.
0: Yeah, sort of, because, you know, um, for example, if if you are somebody who is a, a dedicated practitioner, and I think, you know, a lot of people these days, they, they come to, to these experiences, all these ideas initially through a commercial yoga class, maybe, or, you know, they, they learn philosophy from a teacher, and it sort of opens up their, their worldview. But there's a sense then that maybe you hear these stories of, you know, somebody like you, who's also had these really transcendent experiences that not everybody has had access to yet and there's a sense where as to maybe you rely on knowledge from a teacher or knowledge from a tradition before it really feels like it's come alive in you enough that you can trust that inner guidance or even hear that inner guidance and so what is the 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 shift or the the journey from from one to the other and how can you uh, learn to trust that the inner wisdom is there when it's you feel like you can't hear it yet, and then uh, trust that, that the inner wisdom should be followed when you can.
2: Yes, so that is the big question, <laughs> um, and it's a very bar- it it's it's one of the big questions. Like how do you how do you learn to trust yourself? I mean, first of all, you need to trust yourself, and I think that's something that many of us don't. Do we have to learn how to trust ourselves? Because you know, <laughs> there's many reasons not to trust ourselves. Uh, so I, I'll give you the I'll give you the traditional formula, and then try to talk about this in a you know in a more granular way. Um, but the traditional formula is that you follow the teacher. If you have if it's a question of what you feel and what the teacher feels you follow the teacher uh that's basically what the tradition says now and this is what makes it difficult because the most you know there's nothing that it tells you in a way that's really useful how you know that you should start to listen to your own guidance but this this teaching that meditation teaches meditation um is it's an invitation to 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 ask, to ask yourself questions, you know, like when there's something that, a decision that you have to make, or when there's a path that is showing up that you're not sure is the right path for you, you get in the habit of asking yourself questions. And, you know, there are different ways to do this. There's some of my friends who, um, they, the way they ask the question is, is this course of action in in my highest interest, you know, or in the, in the highest interest of humanity? Uh, or is this the right thing to do? So, so you ask the question, and this is what I do, and then you write down what what comes up, and then you sit, and you really get as deep inside as you possibly can, and then and then you start to write with your non-dominant hand, and this is a practice anybody can do, and it's kind of astonishing, uh, and you just you just just decide what comes out i'm going to trust and then the question is are you going to do it and some things are you know not so hard to do and some things feel really counterintuitive and this is where this is where the only way to find out is to try it and see what happens
1: <laughs>
2: essentially it's you know you if you don't know what to do, pick a side, do it, and if it doesn't work, change. <laughs> you know, it, this is a trial and error life. But the thing is, what the thing about following the scriptures, I mean, there are certain things that the traditional texts say, like, keep good company. You know, get up early and do your practice. Uh, you know, practice nonviolence, tell the truth. These These things, which Yes, we can, circumstances alter cases, but generally speaking, if you're following the Yamas and niyamas, uh, then, you know, and, and actually following them and not trying to fudge it, then when you start asking these questions, what's the right thing to do now? I mean, I mean let's just take a nitty gritty example, S- such as, should I tell my friend that I saw her husband having coffee with another woman is this something that truthfulness requires that I tell her or is their marriage in such shape that if I brought this up, it would cause a bloodbath and and that's a real issue. You know, Do you tell the truth or do you not in those situations? And that's where the rubber meets the road in making these kinds of decisions and you don't always make the right one. So, and it's interesting what the scriptures would tell you in such a case, and I've researched this kind of question a lot. Um, generally speaking, the yogic approach to, you know, dicey situations is back off, don't get involved, <laughs> <laughs>
1: which is, which is, which uh, is interesting. I have one more question. Yes, and this one is a, a what feels like a tricky or sticky one. Um, for for me for us um, and it has to do with navigating the world of East meets West. Um, we're in a conversation here with three white Western women about these incredible ancient Eastern philosophies and practices, and you've been navigating this territory longer than we have, and and in a more I think we've well, you've, you've spent a considerable amount, a considerable amount of time in India with an Indian teacher, and yeah. we're that just that much further removed at this stage of the game. Most of our teachers up to this point have been white Westerners, yeah. and it's just an interesting place for for us to be really mindful. I think of how much how much do we have a right to just by virtue of being human yeah. and how can we honor and respect the culture which birthed and fostered these philosophies and practices and Yeah. how do we how do we navigate that gracefully
2: yeah it's it's a it's it's a really good question and it's really up and on the one hand you know i i would say this is something that a friend of mine wrote on his facebook page that got a lot of negative comments um that a yoga practitioner is a person who practices yoga it doesn't matter where they're from and i do believe that you know and uh and i i you're right i'm from a generation that you know that went fully totally into my guru's culture uh and you know and learned a lot just by osmosis but that said, there are aspects of Indian culture. Even though I'm pretty familiar with them, they're not strange to me. But they're not my culture. And when I'm spending time with a, you know, an Indian person who's practiced yoga, you know, whose tongue gets around the Sanskrit, you know, who learned these mantras often when they were babies. I mean, in other words, there's an entire realm of knowledge that. That just comes to you through your skin, through your pores, when you go up in you know in Indian culture. It's such a profoundly, uh, you know, in the parts of it that are still that way. It's it's a profoundly sacred-facing culture, in a way that most Westerners, especially Westerners who get interested in Eastern paths, you know, are often pretty secular when we start, and we don't have that that basis. Though, so, though I have found that. In the in the west um catholics people who grew up in catholic households sort of get the thing that you know that you see in you know in in indians who have really been immersed in their spiritual cultures so there's no substitute for that you can't you can't make yourself a cradle hindu <laughs> you know, when you grew up in des moines it's just not possible i mean even if you're Indian and grew up in Des Moines, it's not quite the same as growing up immersed in the culture, so yeah, I mean, that's what I mean you It's so important to be to be learning all the time, to be humbly learning all the time, and to recognize you know to and to really honor the tradition. I mean, the difference between honoring a tradition and appropriating it, I believe and I've done this myself, so I I understand why people would do it. You find a practice that you really like, that you really think is cool, and you decide to do it, and you haven't been trained in it, you know, and you don't know its history, and you get, you know, you you, in, you internalize it a bit, and then you often start teaching others. Oh, okay. There's 8 a.m. This is garden day. Um, is that okay? Can you hear me? And I do think, I think that the issue that has come up in the last few years of cultural appropriation, you know, in terms of this tradition is really important and really needed, really necessary. I totally support it. And like everything else, you know, including Me Too, there's, there's extremes on both ends and we kind of want to stay in a place where we're we're honoring We're honoring those who are, you know, let's say genetically connected to the tradition, and we're also honoring those who who have adopted the tradition because we feel a connection that is as that is truly coming from the heart. You know, that's not not for the sake of appropriation because we think it's cool, but because something in us recognizes the power of it. And you know, and the the Indian and the Hindu and Tibetan Buddhist traditions, and I know there, you know, there are other spiritual traditions that are equally powerful, but they're very, very powerful. Technologies, you know, if nothing else. And and those technologies they they can't be found to that extent in other traditions. You know, there's there's unique, I mean there's unique gifts that the Christian tradition offers the world. And uh and their unique gifts that the Hindu tradition offers the world and the unique gifts that the Buddhist tradition offers the world. And why would we want to to not practice them if we can get trained in them, if we can get taught in them, if we can really make them our own? Of course we do. Thank you. And 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 let me also say I I left out I left out Judaism, which is you know also an incredibly profound tradition that um that has often been pretty exclusive you know so so in a way we're breaking boundaries but but we want to break them in a way that's authentic and honoring and above all
0: humble,
1: yeah, I think humility is one of the primary ingredients on this path and it shows up everywhere
2: <laughs> totally totally yeah yeah well and yes it's a it's a very interesting this this moment as as yoga and yoga philosophy and practice are just exploding all over the world how do we not denature it you know how do we how do we honor it adapt it which we will inevitably do because that's what mm-hmm. happens to traditions they they morph
1: you know yeah yeah, yeah. and i yeah. imagine that the yoga tradition has been morphing for thousands of years That it's <laughs> yeah. and yeah. this, is, this is the layer that we are now present to this layer of adaptation yeah and
2: yeah yeah and and the internet and because we have the internet and because you can go online and Find actually an authentic teacher teaching an authentic practice. So it's it's much easier to learn these things and never used to be. But that said, there's a difference between learning something online and actually being in an interactive relationship with the teacher. So shall we do a final mantra?
1: Yes, please.
2: <laughs> so, so um I'm just gonna I'm gonna chant these mantras to the goddess, which which invoke the one who is the most auspicious of all auspiciousness um who is at the heart of the world who is the protector in whom we take refuge i'm paraphrasing a bit but om Sarvamangala mangala mangaye shive sarvatra sarike sharanye Triambake
1: gauri narayani namo today om